All right, we are back, continuing to talk at least in part about things that are covered not so well in the media. Radio Parallax notes, with great amusement, that one thing that neither the right nor the left seems to want to mention is the dating and marrying habits of Kimberly Guilfoyle. Guilfoyle, age 49, is described as the co-host of The Five and an outspoken supporter of the Trump administration. She was briefly considered for the job of White House press secretary last year. Well, now, just two months after his wife filed for divorce, Donald Trump Jr. is apparently dating Miss Guilfoyle. It is said in the news reporting that Guilfoyle seems to have a thing for men with political connections. Out here in California, we'd have to say, well, yeah, being that she used to be known as Mrs. Gavin Newsom. Oh, yeah, Gavin is the frontrunner, by the way, to win the primary election being held in June for the governorship. He's the odds-on favorite to be California's next governor, even though I think there's many a political observer here in California that might compare Gavin Newsom to what was once said about baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn, which was that an empty taxi pulled up and Bowie Kuhn got out. To, to call Gavin a lightweight would be, I think, an insert would, I think, be an insult to boxers of smaller stature. Now, Ms. Guilfoyle apparently also briefly dated Anthony Scaramucci, who for like, what, eight days was the White House press secretary? The reporting says she seems to have a thing for men who wear their hair slicked back. That has long been the preferred look of Gavin Newsom and Anthony Scaramucci, and now of Donald Trump Jr. Speaking of California governors... Our former governor, George Duke Majin, passed away earlier this month. Duke Majin was an assemblyman, a senator, a state attorney general before he finally became California's 35th governor. He ran what's described as a law and order administration from 1983 to 1991, expanding the state prison system, bringing the left-leaning California Supreme Court to center, and supporting tough anti-crime legislation, a lot of which apparently is now being thought to be a rather bad idea, given that California's prisons are packed to the rafters and that efforts are finally underway to get rid of the three strikes law, which unfortunately has been misused. By the way, Jerry Brown, who also in California went from being the attorney general to governor, along with Duke Majin and Pete Wilson and some other governor, I think Gray Davis, someone I'm forgetting, all lined up when there was a ballot initiative some years ago to get rid of three strikes. They all presented a unified front saying, no, in fact, it was a good idea. Anyway, I do want to quote from Dan Walters' column. Walters described how back in December 15th in 1980, he was chatting with George Dukmajan as the state was casting its 45 presidential electoral votes for Ronald Reagan. At these formalities, a lot of attention was being paid to California's then Lieutenant Governor, Mike Kerb, a former recording executive, with all of the gravitas of Gavin Newsom. Mike Kerb was considered the leading GOP candidate for governor in 1982. He enjoyed the implicit blessing of what were called the Kingmakers, which were and are a group of wealthy Southern California businessmen who had shepherded Reagan's transformation from B-movie actor to winning politician. George Duke Majin, said Dan Walters, a former legislator who had been elected attorney general two years early, stood a few feet from the curb entourage chatting with me and one or two other reporters. Offhandedly, Doug Majin mentioned he was setting up an exploratory committee for governor. 
was classic Duke Majin. No flashy, contrived media event, just a quiet declaration. Says Walters, I was a bit shocked because exactly five months earlier, we had walked together from the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit, site of the GOP National Convention that had nominated Reagan, to the California Delegations Hotel a few blocks away, and I had asked him off the record about the governorship. Duke Majin acknowledged, as I already knew, that Republican figures who resented the kingmakers had urged him to run. But he told me he was happy to be attorney general and lead a crackdown on crime and wasn't inclined to give it up for what would be an uphill run for the governorship. Said Dan Walters, as later became evident, the anti-kingmaker faction wouldn't take no for an answer. And with pledges of support from law enforcement leaders and wealthy Armenian Americans, they finally persuaded Duke Majin to take the plunge. The rest is history. Duke Majin not only outpolled Curb in the 82 Republican primary, but defeated Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley by one of the narrowest margins in state history. Should be noted that Bradley actually won among in-person voters and was proclaimed the winner by the media on election night, but a surge of mailed ballots pushed Duke Majin over the top. Speaking of that sort of stuff, we need to get Greg Pallast back on this program. We're not saying that the Dumajan election as California governor involved fraud or chicanery, but um, a lot of other elections in this country did, and we need to talk about some of those. One thing I do find curious about Duke Majin is how little was said when he did pass uh, on May 9th. Anyway, I was glad that Dan Walters wrote a little bit about Duke Majin because, you know, when he passed, he got like four paragraphs. You'd think there'd be more to say about a guy that was governor for eight years, but then again, he was kind of a low-key dude. And someone else who's passed away of late, uh, worthy of mention, would be Alan Bean, the fourth man to walk on the moon. I think we I think we mentioned Alan Bean in passing on last week's show, oddly enough. Uh, Bean was considered one of the better test pilots <laughs> to be selected for the astronaut corps if my memory serves me correctly, about the right stuff. Alan Bean was among the crew members of Apollo 12, which followed the moon landing of Armstrong and Aldrin four months later in 1969. And I believe it was Bean's piloting skills that put the craft down onto the lunar surface. Pete Conrad and Alan Bean spent, I think, 31 hours on the moon. And the obituaries mentioned something that, uh, if I knew, I forgot, which was that uh, they actually witnessed an eclipse of the sun by the Earth while they were on the moon. Bean said this has got to be the most spectacular sight of the whole flight. You can't see the Earth. It's black, just like space. I went on the web and looked up the fate of the 12 people who have walked on the moon. And it appears, sadly, that only three of them are left alive. If Harrison Schmidt is gone, that would only be two, Dave Scott and Buzz Aldrin. I don't want to think about it. And uh, since we're talking about the heavens, let's talk about something that I knew nothing about and still know little about. Article in New Scientist magazine from December 30th of last year about the mystery of the nocturnal sun. piece by Rebecca Boyle describes it as no astronomer's delight. Noted the piece, in the millennia before streetlights and smartphones, human could on rare occasions walk around on a moonless night and see clearly. Looking up, they could see broad, luminous patches of light stretching across the sky, which brightened the heavens in all directions as if it were daylight. People could read without candlelight, view small details in their surroundings, and make out landscapes in the distance. It was as if the world were illuminated by a hidden nighttime sun. 
The existence of bright nights is well accepted, but their cause remains a mystery. Frustratingly, it notes, sightings have almost entirely faded away in the past few decades, making it seem that any hope of solving the riddle was dimming. Now one man says he has seen the solution. The earliest accounts of a bright night comes from Pliny the Elder, a Roman army commander who studied nature in his spare time. In his encyclopedic Natural History, around A.D. 77, he wrote that the phenomenon commonly called a nocturnal sun, a light emanating from the sky at night, has been seen many times. The article notes that the most recent such event, from August 22nd and 23rd in, in 2001, took place in the Argentinian Andes. During that event, Stephen Smith of Boston University of Massachusetts and colleagues reported a night sky that was 10 times brighter than normal. Now, there is an obvious reason why the frequency of reported bright nights might have fallen. It has to be dark to notice them. And these days, 99% of people in Europe and North America sleep under an artificially lit sky. Now, we do know that one such event took place in Paris, 30th of June, 1908, and it was certainly surely no coincidence that this was the day of the Tungungsta event when a huge space rock exploded in the upper atmosphere over Siberia. People around the world reported a haze in the atmosphere for months afterwards. But in most instances, we don't have something we can pin these observations on, and it remains a mystery, much to my astonishment. And leave it to the world's smartest woman, Marilyn Vos Savant, to come up with something we didn't know a damn thing about. In her column last weekend, which I think still appears in Parade, someone asked her the following question. Our local weather station reports the number of lightning strikes during storms and notes how many strikes are positive or negative. What's the difference? Said the world's smartest woman. Negative lightning, which accounts for about 95% of all strikes, transfers a negative charge from the cloud to the ground. Positive lightning transfers a positive charge and, and nearly is always far stronger. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, positive lightning may discharge as much as 300,000 amperes and generate 1 billion volts of current. It is believed to cause a large percentage of forest fires and other major damage. If you know something about this, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. In fact, we'd like to hear from you in general. So if you feel like commenting on anything whatsoever that you've heard on this program, why, drop us a line, again, at info at radioparallax.com. We enjoy hearing from you. A topic we're going to take on in some future installment of this program is uh, the difference between economists and economics in general versus, shall we say, the more hard sciences. There's another, there's another atmospheric mystery to talk about which um, touches on both. In this case, economics versus atmospheric chemistry. According to an article by Seth Borenstein, something strange is happening with a now-banned chemical that eats away at Earth's protective ozone layer. Scientists say there's more of it, not less, and they don't know where it's coming from. When a hole in the ozone formed over Antarctica, countries around the world in 1987, agreed to phase out several types of ozone-depleting chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons. Production was banned, emissions fell, and the hole slowly shrank. But starting in 2013, emissions of the second, most common kind, started rising, according to a study in the journal Nature. 
The chemical called CFC-11 was used in making foam, degreasing stains, and for refrigeration. Study lead author Stephen Monska said, it's the most surprising and unexpected observation I made in my 27 years. He is a research chemist at NOAA. He noted that emissions today are about the same as it was nearly 20 years ago. Countries have reported close to zero production of the chemical since 2006, but the study found about 14,000 tons a year have been released since 2013. Some seeps out of foam and building and machines, but the scientists say that they're seeing much more than that. Measurements from a dozen monitors around the world suggest the emissions are coming from somewhere around China, Mongolia, and the Koreas. The chemical can be a byproduct in other chemical manufacturing, but is supposed to be captured and recycled. Either somebody's making the banned compound or it's sloppy byproducts that haven't been reported as required. An outside expert, Ross Salowich, an atmospheric scientist at the University of Maryland, is less diplomatic. He calls it rogue production, adding that if it continues, the recovery of the ozone layer would be threatened. That is unfortunate. But is anyone surprised that this is coming out of China? In a more recent article that appeared in New Scientist titled How to Solve a Problem Like Plastics, some disturbing data appear. We've talked at great length about these garbage patches out in the world's oceans consisting of waste plastic. But what hasn't been reported is that 80% of this material is coming from just five countries. Turns out that 10 rivers transport 90% of riverborne waste, which enters the ocean, making up more than a quarter of the total plastic in the ocean. And all but two of those rivers are in Asia. Those five countries that are responsible for 80% of the plastic waste entering the oceans are, drumroll, China, Vietnam, the Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand. It appears that the greatest gains we might make in cleaning up these uh, garbage patches in the ocean would be to not dump it in the first place. There's been a great deal of talk about entrepreneurs going out in the ocean and gathering it all up, but a lot of people are skeptical of this. Mark Erickson, co-founder of the Five Gyres Institute, a U.S. nonprofit, says the truth is it's so spread out, it's so fragmented, it doesn't make sense economically to do that. It is noted that even the most well-known ocean cleanup projects are, between them all, removing 0.5% of marine plastic trash. Well, again, it appears to be economics versus ecology. When it's simply cheaper to do something one way, that's generally how it gets done. No surprise there. But the dirty secret in all of this is that because oil is cheap, once it's discarded, plastic is essentially worthless. It's cheaper to start afresh. It is possible to recycle a great deal of plastic, but currently, evidently, 14% is all we collect for recycling around the world. All right, in the time we have left in today's program, let's go cycle back into tech and how things are being reported. As far as the how things are reported side goes, I was struck by the cover of the Week magazine showing Robert Mueller sitting on a dock with a fishing rod. The cover story was titled, How's the Fishing? What we know and don't know after one year of Mueller's Russia investigation. I'm disturbed by the fact they're using a fishing metaphor, like, like Mueller's out there trying to go find something and pull it out of the sea, something that may or may not be there. I don't know. At this point, with 19 indictments and five guilty pleas, I think there is something to this Russian business. 
The idea that this is all political bias has gained a certain amount of traction, I think a lot more than it should. Anyway, I had to laugh when I saw a headline in the Bay Area uh, referring to Regional Measure 3, which will raise the taxes we all pay when we cross the bridges of the Bay Area. The title of the article was Traffic or Higher Tolls? You Make the Choice. I think this headline miscategorizes the issue. The actual headline should be Traffic and higher tolls. You don't get a choice. I did chuckle at the article quoted a Susun City resident, Armando Rodriguez, who has to get up at 3.45 every morning to make his job in Oakland by 6. He notes that if he spends extra five minutes in bed, he's spending an extra 30 minutes stuck in traffic. As, as far as the notion of the approximately 250 extra dollars that he would have to pay at the toll plaza helping traffic, his comment was, well... They said that last time they raised the tolls. A companion article notes that it is some of Silicon Valley's tech behemoths and other large employers that are putting their money behind Regional Measure 3, the proposed $3 toll increase on the June 5th ballot. Reportedly, it could raise $4.45 billion over the next decade to pay for traffic-busting highway and transit projects. Yeah, well, good luck with the traffic-busting. If we keep bringing more people to the Bay Area, the traffic is not going to get better. Isn't, isn't that clear? I mean, you know, BART can do a certain amount. Mass transit can do a certain amount. But if you keep bringing more and more people on board, you're going to lose ground. And if you think that flying cars will solve the problem, I would say please restrict yourself to cigarettes with labels on them. All right. And talking of tech, we have a, an article from New Scientist, May 19th issue, that um, explains that we're only just now realizing the power of big data. Brief Peace notes that in 2007, Facebook was only a few years old. Millions of people around the world were rushing to the platform, quick to show off intimate aspects of their lives to friends. Few realized that their interactions with a website could be such a valuable asset or be so revealing. It was about this time that David Stilwell, a recent psychology graduate, set up the Facebook personality quiz app, My Personality, which gathered data on how users mapped to the five big personality traits. Peace notes that back then, Facebook could do no wrong, but things have changed. In the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, people are realizing that their personal data is valuable and must be protected. Last year, research from the My Personality team showed how people on Facebook are more susceptible to adverts that are tailored to their psychological traits. Duh. Across 3.5 million people, the team found that those targeted in this way were 40% more likely to click on an advert and 50% more likely to make a purchase. Facebook doesn't allow targeting directly based on psychological traits. But by finding correlations between things people have liked on the platform and traits, it's possible to switch between the two. In other words, a data set like that gathered by my personality is the tool you need to make all this happen. How about this little datum from Recode.net? Two-thirds of adults worldwide will own a smartphone by next year, according to media measurement company Zenith. The Netherlands has the highest rate of ownership with 94%. In the U.S., just under 70% of adults are forecast to own a smartphone in 2018. And let's close with uh, the article in The Independent. 
April 5th, 2018, titled How Silicon Valley, comma, Spooks, comma, and the Super Rich Took Control of the 21st Century. The subheadline says, It is a story that extends beyond a limited set of corporate players and a billionaire super class. As is pretty well established by now, a lot of folks think that the Brexit referendum and the Trump election were related to media manipulations. The piece quotes an article by Garrel Cadwaller in The Observer last year, noting that Britain and the U.S. are increasingly looking like a managed democracy, paid for by a U.S. billionaire using military-style technology delivered by Facebook and enabled by all of us. Peace notes that the concept of a managed democracy goes back almost 100 years. During the 1920s, Edward Bernays was one of the pivotal figures who helped to develop the concept of managed democracy. Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud and the father of modern-day public relations. He understood that advertising could subliminally tap into the unconscious of repressed animal instincts such as sexual desire. His clients included some of the largest U.S. corporations. Bernays transplanted the same techniques into politics. The piece notes that propaganda in various guises, such as the use of mass media in order to manipulate populations, well, that led to the U.S. military and CIA deploying psychological operations, mass propaganda induced through emotions across the world in various theaters, from the wars in Korea and Vietnam to Central America during the Cold War. The only difference today is that the Internet has become the new playground for 21st century psychological operations. The article notes that for a long time, Silicon Valley presented itself as the shiny, happy face of capitalism. It sold the promise of new technology that could connect the global village. Facebook's mission statement was making the world more open and connected. The Internet even held out the utopian possibility of liberating societies. Peace notes that as with all technology, this has proved to be a double-edged sword. Discussing the technologies, the article notes that Google has a contract with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, NGA, allowing the agency to use Google Earth Builder. Google's mapping technology is used for geospatial intelligence purposes, such as supporting U.S. troops in Iraq, while Google and the NGA purchased GOI-1, which is the world's highest resolution satellite. Google has a revolving door with the national security state, employing managers with background in military and intelligence work, and partnering with defense contractors including Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, focusing on drones and robotics. Amazon has developed a $600 million cloud computing system for the CIA that also services all 17 U.S. intelligence agencies. Yes, Amazon. The dating mining company Plantier was co-funded by Trump donor and backer Peter Thiel. Palantir's advisors included Condoleezza Rice and former CIA director George Tenet. Its customers include the NSA, the FBI, and the CIA. Due to the fact that it is a leader in the field of mining massive data sets, it has been deployed by the Marines in Afghanistan and in the Mexican drug war. Its commercial clients include the Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, News Corp., and pharmaceutical firms. Peter Thiel is a Silicon Valley tech billionaire. He also co-founded PayPal as a system of electronic payment. He went on to give Mark Zuckerberg the first outside investment in Facebook, consisting of a half-million-dollar loan, later converted into a 7% ownership stake and seat on the board. Thiel's hedge fund, Clarium Capital Management, has assets of more than $7 billion. That was before the financial crisis. His venture capital firm, Founders Fund, has an online manifesto that begins... 
We wanted flying cars. Instead, we got 140 characters, summing up his pessimistic stance on the demise of technologic utopianism. Peter Thiel has cultivated a libertarian persona in a 2009 essay. However, he fleshed out what he regards as the increasing incompatibility of capitalism and democracy. And it turns out that Donald Trump's biggest campaign donor was Robert Mercer, a reclusive American hedge fund billionaire and computer scientist. Mercer began his career at IBM, working on breakthroughs in language processing integral development of artificial intelligence. He went on to become joint CEO of the hedge fund Renaissance Technologies, which applies algorithms to model and trade on financial markets. One of its funds, Medallion, is reportedly the most successful in the world, all of which has enabled Mercer to coordinate with the Koch brothers, donating tens of million dollars to Republican political campaigns and ultra-conservative operations. As New Yorker investigative journalist Jane Mayer relates, both Mercer and oil tycoon William Lee Hanley had commissioned polling for Patrick Cadell ahead of the 2016 election, which showed mounting anger towards wealthy elites who many Americans believe had corrupted the government so that it served only their interests. They were hungry for a populist presidential candidate. I think one could assume that this so-called populist would be one in name only, if the right people uh, got behind him financially, to ensure that they were protected. Isn't that the nature of how things really work? And a brief review of how this technology was used by certain people uh, reveals that, at least according to Sam Woolley of the Oxford Internet Institute's Computational Propaganda Unit, one-third of all traffic on Twitter prior to the EU referendum was generated by automated bots, which were all pro-leave. And prior to the U.S. 2016 election, the same automated bots were 5-1 to one in favor of Trump, with many of them Russian. The piece notes that there were hundreds of automated websites pumping out pro-Trump messages, crafting a mass consensus or political climate. Reportedly, there are thousands of dormant sleeper bots presumably waiting to be activated during a future crisis. How's that sit with you? The article notes that the U.S. Department of Defense has been funding research into the use of the Internet for 21st century psychological operations. The Pentagon's military research arm, DARPA, has been conducting experiments on the Internet in order to study social connections, propagation of messages, and influence behavior. This shouldn't surprise anyone. DARPA's Social Media in Strategic Communications, SMISC program, is developing algorithms for the formation, development, and spread of ideas and concepts, parentheses, memes, and parentheses, on social media. SMISC is channeling millions in funding for projects to corporations and academic hubs. This has included studies analyzing how Occupy activists used Twitter. Twitter users' opinions on fracking and interactions of Twitter users in the Middle East. Anyway, I think this is kind of a landmark article, and I'm not finished quoting from it, but looks like we're out of time. This might be a good place to stop and resume quoting from it at some not-too-distant future date. That's assuming, of course, we haven't been stopped by the bots. In the one minute or so left to, to us today, I want to end on something that's good news. And um, in that regard, I'm happy to report that there is some good news out of Africa regarding elephants, finally. According to the New York Times, Chad's Zakuma National Park is home to one of the most stunning conservation success stories in Africa. Less than a decade ago, 
This preserve was a slaughterhouse. Postridge killed all but 400 of its 4,000 elephants amid the chaos of Chad's 2005-2010 Civil War. When the conflict ended, management of the preserve was passed to the South African nonprofit African Parks. Today, it's a rare safe haven for Africa's imperial elephants, and people are making the journey to do what can only be described as elephant tourism. If you take the time to make this trip to Chad, you'll be whisked from the airport to the park where you'll be guarded by well-trained rangers and supportive local communities. I don't like the guarded part, but anyway. Um, apparently, by day, safari goers can view lions, cheetahs, leopards, and giraffes, as well as the elephants. Night brings out the parade of smaller carnivores. Chad is not exactly a world-class destination for um, ecotourism, but perhaps it can become one in the future. We hope so. At any rate, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we will talk to you again soon.